Amen. <clears throat> Whenever Jesus uh, was hanging, you have to excuse my allergy-like voice tonight. Um, Jesus was hanging on the cross, and what was so different about it is that it was midday, it was noon, and the land was dark. Instead of vibrant people walking around the city, looking, uh, doing their jobs, there was something different about this day. It was, it was between noon and 3 o'clock that Jesus is hanging there, and it's, it's dark, and there's a chill in the air. Not necessarily uh, from, from a, a nice, cool uh, wind blowing to cool you off in the heat of the day, but a chill in the hearts of people who have just witnessed what they saw. Because what they saw was a man who was innocent, a man who was perfect, and someone who didn't deserve to be hanging there. They saw him, his body torn apart, and they saw him hang there and die. But the crucifixion, crucifixion wasn't out of the norm. Uh, these, these people in Jesus' time witnessed crucifixion, but what was so different about this is the fact that there was a criminal who was released right before Jesus was to be crucified. And people sat there and watched, and there was something that they felt as they left. And it was the gravity of the moment that they didn't maybe know at the time, but it was the event that would change the course of world civilization. From that point until now, all the world has changed. But what happened? What happened in that moment that made it so special, that made it so tough, that made it so agonizing? What happened in that crucifixion moment? Matthew chapter 27 tells us, tells us the story, so does Luke 23. I'm going to read that to you, and we're going to look at a different passage. We're going to read Matthew 27, 45 through 56, and it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But, but the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the city, the holy city, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. 
There are also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Luke 23 also has an account of this. I'm going to read it to us as well. It starts at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth, while the sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. There were so many things that happened here, several things that, that I want to note that weren't normal about this crucifixion. First off, it's dark in the middle of the day. You typically wouldn't see that at noon. In Matthew's account, it says there was an earthquake and rocks split. In both accounts, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This was a temple that was nine inches thick. It was something that you couldn't just go up and tear very easily. It tore in two when Jesus breathed his last. Saints from generations past were resurrected and they went into the city. It didn't happen at every crucifixion. There was a centurion man and he claimed that Jesus was the innocent son of God. And then people go home beating their breasts because of remorse. Remorse of what they had been led to do. Remorse of what they had just seen. And then there was Jesus' disciples. The people closest to him standing there, looking on at a distance. Why are all these odd things happening in that moment? Because this was no normal crucifixion. And we can look back and say, yeah, you know, we know that now. But what I want us to look at tonight, this is going to be our passage, Hebrews 9. If you'll turn to it, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. We're going to see these gospel accounts tell us what happened, but Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 tells us what happened during this crucifixion moment. It says, starting at verse 11, but when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We're going to see two truths tonight from this passage. The first is that Jesus died once for all. If you underline or write in your Bible, look at verse 12 where it says once for all and underline that. That is one of the key 
doctrines, if you will, of what makes Jesus' sacrifice so special. Jesus is the high priest who entered into the holy place with his own blood. I can say that, and honestly, we can be like, okay, in this 21st century Western mindset, what are you talking about? Blood of a goat, of a calf, ashes of a heifer. What, what exactly went on right here? But to understand what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, we've got to understand the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you, if, you, if you look back at Hebrews, the first part of Hebrews, verse 9, or chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, it gives you an illustration of what happens in the sacrificial system that the Old Testament, after Moses had established it, what happened for years and years and years. Now, even the first covenant, this is starting at verse 1, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared... The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covering all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn burning, holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Verse 6 says, These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. But this, the Holy Spirit indicates, that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, here's what happened. There were sacrifices daily, but there was one special sacrifice that happened one time a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. The priest would go into the Holy of Holies, which is what we just read about. He would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would make a sacrifice for himself and for his people. The thing is, he would only go in once a year to the Holy of Holies. And there was some stipulations for that. He was going to go in to commune with God on behalf of him and his people, but he had to go in with blood from a sacrificed animal to atone for his sin and for the sins of the people that he represented. He was going into the Holy of Holies on other people's behalf, and this happened year after year after year after year. And the deal was, it wasn't just a small deal, like this was it. This was the moment that if you were an Israelite, you waited for. Because you wanted to know if your sin was going to be forgiven, you lived in anticipation for the Day of Atonement. People would come from all over to watch to see what was going to happen with this priest when he goes into the Holy of Holies. Would he come out? This is the day that we would all have waited for. And our anticipation was based on the priest, 
Was his heart right before God? Had he made himself right before he went to God? And secondly, it would have been based on the animal that he chooses. Is the animal that he chooses going to be without blemish? Is it going to be perfect? Is it going to be good enough for God to say, okay, that sacrifice is good enough for me to forgive you? This happened year after year, but what's so tough is that hope of the Day of Atonement was the priest and the animal. So the people might have thought, you know, what if, what if our priest, what if, he, what if he's not right with God? What if, he didn't, what if he didn't make things right with that person that he wronged? Are our sins going to be forgiven? What if, what if maybe um, that goat that he chooses, he didn't, he didn't see that part of its horn was kind of was mangled? Was he paying careful enough attention? Did he notice that, that calf? Did he notice that the hoof on it, was, there was something wrong with it? Did, did he choose that one? Everything was riding on what the priest chose and who the priest was. Think of the sins that you've committed over this last year. Some of you are like, look, I don't even want to think about what I've committed over the last week. But of all the sins that you've committed over the last year, they stack up. They stack up very, very high. And at the end of the year, your only hope would have been in a priest and his heart and the animal that he chooses. Over time, this could have been a joyful occasion. Because if that priest walks out of there, you know at that moment that God has forgiven your sin. But what if he doesn't? What if that priest doesn't walk out of there? Or maybe, maybe the bells that are tied to his feet stop, stop ringing and, and they have to pull him out of there because he's dead. And he went into God's presence with sin in his heart. What happens then? Do you have any... Do you, do you have any hope? Leading up to this day, these people would have felt the most angst that you could possibly feel. On a much less degree, very less, it's kind of like the angst that maybe some of y'all feel when you go to the dentist. You know, you mark that on your calendar, and like when it's nine months out, you're okay. Or if you're like me, you know, you hadn't been in six years, but you're nine months out, and you're okay with that. But, like, when it gets to three days, and you've been killing the jelly beans and Mountain Dew, you're not looking forward to going to see the dentist. So you don't know what's going to come out of that moment. Because you're afraid that when you walk in there, he's going to say, hey, man, the news is not good. Everything that the Israelites were banking on was on a man walking into a tent or a tabernacle, walking into a tent and whether or not he was going to come out. So why does the writer of Hebrews compare Jesus to this? Why does, why does he call Jesus a high priest and says he goes into the most holy place? Because Jesus did the exact same thing that the Old Testament priest did. The difference Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is different than any other Old Testament priest that goes to make a sacrifice for his people. 
He was 100% God and he was 100% man. Something that I will never be able to explain, something that nobody can explain, but it's something that we trust. He lived a perfect human life setting the standard for us to live by. Jesus kept God's law to perfection, something that nobody else could possibly do. That's why they had to go yearly and make sacrifices. Jesus in his perfection goes before God, not in an earthly tent, but on a cross. This passage says he doesn't go into an earthly tent to make a sacrifice. He goes to a, to, into a tent not made with hands. He goes to a cross before God, not just taking the sins of the Israelites, but of the entire human race. But when he goes there and Jesus is hanging on a cross, he's not just hanging there feeling the physical agony. He is feeling the very wrath of God against your sin and against my sin, imputed into him, feeling all the pain that you have ever felt, feeling the depression that you may have felt, feeling the anger that you may feel. Jesus felt all of that, but because he was 100% man, he understood what we go through. But because he's 100% God, he was able to overcome it. That's, that's why Jesus is a greater high priest. This passage says that Jesus was the high priest for humanity. He goes before God on our behalf just like in the Old Testament, but the biggest difference is it didn't happen year in and year out. Verse 12 says it happened once and for all by him shedding his own blood. Jesus shed his own blood and his sacrifice was completely sufficient once. It didn't have to happen over and over, unlike the Old Testament priests. And because of this, this passage says it secures our eternal redemption. If you underline in your Bible, underline that. It secures your eternal redemption. Jesus goes once to suffer for your sins so that when you trust him for your salvation, you have eternal redemption. There's nothing else that you have to worry about. There's nothing else that you have to try to do. Jesus has already done it. That's what he goes, and that's what he does. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you walked in here tonight redeemed, you are the righteousness of God. God. If you walked in here tonight and you know Jesus and you have a personal relationship with him because you understood that you're a sinner and he is the Savior, you are the righteousness of God. Understand this too, that Jesus' greatest suffering wasn't the physical agony that he suffered on the cross. That would have been painful, but there have been people throughout history, Christians who have been martyred, that have probably suffered greater physical agony. What was so great about that is the, the, the toughness of his agony was the fact that he suffered broken communion with a God, God the Father, that he had been with for eternity. Some of you have had loved ones that have passed. And you love them dearly, and maybe, maybe, maybe it was a spouse, or you've seen someone lose a spouse over years, or maybe, maybe it's, a, it's a mother or a father or a sibling. And that 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years that you have spent with them, it was so tough when that relationship was broken by their death. Well, Jesus had spent eternity with God the Father, and when God poured out his wrath because of our sin onto Jesus, 
Jesus suffered. It doesn't mean he wasn't God. He was God. That's why he rose from the grave three days later. But he suffered broken communion with the Father. That was his physical agony. His agony was that he was suffering your sin and shame and guilt and my anger and depression and loneliness. Jesus was suffering for all of that. Not just for one person or for two people, but for the billions of people who ever lived. So what is the implication based on this for us, for, for believers? It's to simply trust and rest in the sufficiency of Christ's salvation. Trust and rest in the sufficiency of Christ's salvation. Let me explain sufficiency just for a second. You know what it means. But anybody ever had that moment when you go to the store and you swap a debit card and the cashier looks at you and says, insufficient funds. Am I the only person? Okay, I guess so. No, a couple. All right. Um, that's not fun. It's also embarrassing when you're fresh out of high school and you're trying to impress a girl and you go on a date and you can't even pay for Pizza Hut. And I'm not going to go into that story tonight. But, like, that's, that's embarrassing when they come back and say, you don't have enough money on your card. And you're like, oh, my goodness. You're like, look, I just forgot to cash my check. Yeah, that's right. Uh, insufficient means that you don't have enough to take care of it. The fact is, Jesus did everything that we need to do in order to pay for our sin. Our ticket of sin cost more than any fund of good works could ever pay back. There's no amount of good works that we could do that could finally get us to that point that God says, hey, I will accept you. No, we will forever be sinners, but Jesus has made us new because he took the punishment that we deserved and he did it in our place. Sometimes we just need to slow down, reflect, and be thankful about what God's done. Sometimes just reflect on the very fact that Jesus has saved us from our sin. And that should change our relationship with our, with our spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers, with your employees. Why? Because if you are undeserving but you receive the gift of salvation, how much more should we attempt to, to mimic that in our relationships with people? The second truth we see tonight is Jesus changes our motivation. Jesus changes our motivation. Something else greatly different in the Old Testament sacrificial days in Jesus' crucifixion. In the Old Testament days, the sacrifice could only cover what you had done openly. It couldn't cover your heart. It could only cover what you had done openly. It could not make you a new person. Hebrews 9.9 states that the sacrifices made could only deal with the laws one was supposed to keep, but it couldn't do anything with your conscience. What the Old Testament sacrificial days did was maybe take care of the sin that you had done openly, but it couldn't take care of who you are. It's like keeping a law for the sake of not getting punished. 
You're keeping that law out of fear, not because of an internal change in your heart. Parents, you know this well. You punish your children for doing something, and you're punishing them for doing, for, for doing whatever they've done, hoping that you don't have to punish them again, but you're not simply just punishing them so that they won't do it again or because they've done it. You're punishing them because you hope that there's some kind of change that takes place inside their heart to where they don't do what you've asked them not to do. In other words, you're not punishing for the fun of it. I hope not, at least. You're not punishing for the fun of it, but you're punishing your child based on what they've done in hopes that it changes what they maybe decide to do later. Verse 13 says, If the ashes of a heifer could purify the flesh, how much more does the blood of the one and only Son of God cleanse your sin and your conscience too? The Old Testament system was incomplete because you'd only been cleansed by what you'd done. But what Jesus has done is fully complete because not only does it save your soul, you are an adopted child of God with a new identity. And you're a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What more could a person ask for? then if you are a lowly, nasty sinner to be given the new identity as a child of the king, there's nothing more than we could ask for than to be accepted and approved by the only person that matters. So what are the implications of this? We're cleansed to praise the living God. Verse 14 of this passage, love it so much because at the very end it talks about being purified to serve the living God. But we're cleansed so that we can praise the living God. If somebody gives us a gift that either we don't deserve or we're not expecting, if somebody came in and say, paid for the next year's worth of my mortgage and then all the, you know, what am I going to do about that person? I'm going to talk about how great they are constantly. Because they've done something either that I didn't deserve or they wanted to do to help me out. The reason we are to praise God, to praise Jesus through what we say, through how we live, through what we sing. The reason we do that is because of the gift that he has given to us. We didn't deserve salvation. I didn't deserve salvation. But Jesus died on a cross and extended that gift to me. He extended that gift to you. That's why we praise him. Secondly, we're cleansed to serve the living God. We're cleansed to serve the living God. Tim Keller uses this this baseball analogy that that I love. He says there are two ways that if you have a, he talks about having having a dad and and a son. And he said there are two ways that you can, that son can go out there and play. He can play out of fear or he can play out of acceptance. First, he can play out of fear because if he goes out and he is so worried about doing good that every time that he swings, he swings for the fences, only hoping that if he connects, his dad will finally approve of him, but out of fear that if he doesn't connect with one, his dad's not going to love him. He's playing the game out of fear. Or Keller says there's the second way, and that's playing the game out out of acceptance. Before the son goes out on the field, the dad pulls him aside and says, 
says, son, I want you to know that I'll love you no matter what. Doesn't matter how you play on the field, I'm going to love you. Now, when that boy walks out on the field, is he still going to want to swing for the fences? Well, yeah, he wants to hit a home run. But, but has his motivation changed? Yes, because he's not trying to gain his dad's acceptance. He's already gotten it. He is playing because his dad has accepted him. Some of you may be God's calling you to do something, and you're worried about, what, 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 if, what, if, it doesn't, what if it doesn't work? What if, what if God doesn't come through on this? Or what if, what if I try something? Or, or have I been bad enough that, that God's not going to approve anything that I do? Let me say this. God will never approve you based on how good you are because he approves you based on who Jesus is. God only approves you based on who Jesus is. And we are cleansed, purified to serve the living God. I'll close with this story of a great hymn writer that most of you probably know, um, John Newton. And he started his days, I heard, I heard this in a sermon a while back, he started his days as a, as a slave trader. And he was just like any other slave trader, you know, traded, bought, everything, until God convicted him. And he, he goes one day to the, to the auction or the market or whatever happens to, to buy, and he goes and he finds this servant girl, and he buys her. Except when he does, he takes her back home along with the others. He takes her back home, and, and when they get home, she's assuming that it's just going to be like another maybe slave owner she's had, but he looks at her and he says, look, you're, you're free to go. And she kind of looks at him and is like, what? What are you talking about? And he says, no, you're free to go. I bought you to bring you here so that I could set you free. And she comes back later, and she looks at him, and she's like, look, I don't want to go. I'll stay here and do whatever you ask. Now, why, if she was free, would she stay to do whatever he asked? Because she was not serving him out of obligation or out of fear. She was serving him because of his act of love and his acceptance of her. If you're a child of God, you are a believer in Jesus, you are called to serve Jesus, not hoping that you will one day become good enough that God will say you've finally done, done well. You're called to serve Jesus based on his acceptance and his approval already of you. Jesus died once for all, and because of what he's done, and who we are in him, he changes our motivation. Let's pray together.